Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we conclude our series today, Christmas from the Beginning of Time, with a message titled, His Story and Ours. So turning your Bibles to the book of Malachi as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I have noticed that everyone has a story. It's a story of the things that make up the pieces of our lives. It was some years ago that Kathy and I were at Cultus Lake out in BC's Fraser Valley, and I came upon a man who had put the club on his steering wheel and had left the key of the device back at his home, which was some 50 kilometers away. He had no way to get home and get the key that would allow him to drive his car. So I encountered him with a hacksaw in his hand. He was trying to saw off that thing off his steering wheel. It was a hopeless activity. His wife was standing a distance away, wondering what to do, and I began to talk to him. And Kathy engaged her in conversation, and we decided to drive them back to their home and get the keys and come back, an adventure that took us close to two hours. You know, in the meantime, we got to know this couple in their mid-60s, recently married, and found out that she had grown up in one of the Eastern European countries and that she had been a ballerina. When we got into their house, I found myself speechless, for there on her wall were pictures of her as a younger woman then, dancing in a ballet with none other than Mikhail Baryshnikov, perhaps the most famous ballet dancer in history. See, by now, both Kathy and I were fascinated with who this couple was, and the rest of the time was spent in, in hearing and understanding how this remarkable and talented woman, who had never heard the gospel, but had traveled the world and lived a lavish lifestyle, had then ended up in the far side of a Canadian city in a place called Chilliwack, of all things, married to a local blue-collar worker. I mean, it was an amazing story. I wonder if you've ever been fascinated with people and realized that everyone has a story. I mean, people are fascinating. How sad it is to go through life and never find out anything of the amazing stories all around us. Well, God has a story, and His story far outstrips the sum total of all human stories. The Bible, in fact, is the story of God. And this story simply captures the imagination. I mean, how sad it is to go through life and never become overwhelmed with the story of God. Now, this Christmas, our study has been Christmas from the beginning of time. It's the study of the roots of Christmas found in the Old Testament. And it's for that reason that we are called upon to reject the idea that the Old Testament is somehow passe, like an old computer or old pair of shoes, now simply discarded in the light of the New Testament. We've pointed out that the words themselves, Old Testament, are not found in the Bible and sometimes convey the wrong idea about what the first 39 books of the Bible are all about. We must gain insight that all of the Bible is a relevant word of God, the story of a God who does not change. Now, while it's true that the Bible presents us with what Bible teachers call progressive revelation, that means that the First Testament is not complete. Also, the First Testament doesn't tell us all the things that are going to be revealed later in the Final Testament. So, for instance, We don't really learn about the final state of believers in the Old Testament. We don't learn about the new heavens and the new earth until we come to the New Testament or the final testament. See, the first testament never leads us down a wrong path, which now must be corrected by the New Testament. It's never appropriate to say, well, that's just the Old Testament, as if the first 39 books can be discarded at will. 
Indeed, everything we learn about Jesus has its roots in the First Testament, and it's indispensable to knowing who Christ is and understanding the meaning of Christ entering into our world. Now, because that's been our theme, I'm not trying to give the impression that every Old Testament text mentions Christ. It clearly does not. But we're trying to give the impression that Christ is the theme of the entire Bible and that the longing for the coming of the Messiah is the major thread that runs through the first 39 books of our Bible. But how? See, the Bible is the story of the glory of God. That is, once you master this book, you're going to be overwhelmed with just how great and how lovely and how majestic, how powerful, how wise is our God. That's what we mean by glory. Glory is a word that describes the sum total of who God is. He is overwhelmingly great. Furthermore, the Bible will so present God that it becomes possible to find our ultimate joy in him alone. We're able to understand the wonderful words of Psalm 42, verse 1, which says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. That's where the story of God leaves us. But what is this story all about? Well, it's the story of God's grand project. The story of God is expressed so well in Habakkuk 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, this is the story of the God of creation expressing the reason for his creation. He wants to fill his creation with his glory. This is the story of how that is accomplished. Now, in reading the Bible, we soon discover that God demonstrates his glory in remarkable ways, but the apex or the crescendo is found in his redeeming love and mercy. God will take a ruined humanity and forgive and restore them in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the Bible story. And that's why Christmas, the birth of Christ, marks the crescendo of the book. So we've looked at some selected Bible texts. In Genesis 3.15, Jesus is the one who wounds the head of the serpent, thus crushing Satan, who would utterly destroy us. In the rest of Genesis, the coming of the Messiah is the hope that pervades the book. In Exodus, the celebration of Passover reminds us that we need a Passover lamb to come and release us from the just punishment of our sins. In Leviticus 16, We're reminded that we need a doorway to be opened that allows us to approach the altogether glorious God without dying in the process. In 2 Samuel 7, we're told that Christ will arise from the throne of David. His rulership over the world emanates from David's ancient throne. In many of the Psalms, like Psalm 2 and Psalm 89 and Psalm 110, this theme is reinforced in the language of poetry. And then, of course, in the books of the prophets, well, the well-known Isaiah 7, the prophecy of the virgin birth, and Isaiah 9, the names of the Christ to be born, wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I mean, these are the promises that are recounted every Christmas. And finally, in Jeremiah chapters 30 to 33, which fills us with hope that the Messiah will end the world of sorrow and weeping and that ultimately the perfect realm of joy will be upon us. In all, we accept the First Testament as no minor or lesser revelation, but a necessary part of the full story of God. And so we've seen that the entire Bible, both Testaments, are about the glory of God displayed in his redemptive mercy, finally accomplished in his long-awaited Messiah, who is Jesus of Nazareth, 
born in a manger to Mary, the virgin who gives birth to a son whose reign will never end. But of course, like any great story, there is a movement to it. It's a story that's going somewhere. You know, at times it doesn't seem to make sense. And then again, it surprises us by pulling all the parts together and it's leading to a climax. So today, on a way of pulling this series together, we're going to go to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. It is the last book that was written before Christ came. And in many ways, if you look at it from only one perspective, it might seem like the entire storyline of God's glory and his redemption that they failed in the Old Testament. When the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem and and dragged the entire population of Israel into exile in 586 B.C., the Davidic kingdom had failed and there was no one left on David's throne. The temple had been burned with fire and all of Israel was forcibly removed from their own land. Now, how will the Messiah or the Christ come to rule the world when David's throne now lies in ruin? But Isaiah the prophet had predicted this. He said, there will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. You know, the idea is that although the Davidic kingdom will be chopped down just like a tree, a root shall spring up. In other words, in the day when it seems like all hope in the Messiah is lost, in that very day, something remarkable is going to happen. Jeremiah had also spoken into this. He said, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. In other words, what Isaiah had spoken of using poetic language, Jeremiah now makes plain. Babylon will come in and destroy Jerusalem, and the people will be in exile 70 years, but that was not the end. Later on in Jeremiah, we read in Jeremiah 29 verse 10, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And that's what happened. In exact fulfillment of Isaiah 44, verse 28, God raised up a Persian king by the name of Cyrus. Isaiah even predicted the exact name of that man. You can look that up at Isaiah 44, verse 28. And and this Cyrus, in the year 538 BC, orders a decree for the Jews to go back to the land of Israel and rebuild the city and the temple. All of that gets discussed in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Clearly, the coming of the Messiah was near. This year, God has blessed the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada with both the increased opportunity and provision to teach the Bible. It's undeniable that His helping hand has been at work as we reflect on everything He has allowed Back to the Bible Canada to accomplish on His behalf. Now we look forward to all He has in store for 2023. This calendar year end, Back to the Bible Canada has a goal to raise $519,000 by December 31st. This will help position the ministry to carry out all the plans God has crafted for His glory. Now, each of us has the privilege to participate in sharing the gospel through the trustworthy teaching of His Word. Your partnership plays a crucial role in ensuring the ongoing ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, and we are beyond grateful for it. To offer a gift toward our year-end goal, just call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. When the First Testament ends, there's a sense of expectation that the coming of the Messiah must be near. But there are problems. 
For one, the work of rebuilding the temple seemed so insignificant. When Solomon, the great king, built the first temple, the empire of Israel was expanding. And how much easier it was then to believe that the king would come from the line of David and would rule the world. But when the first temple was dedicated, the glory of the Lord overshadowed it. But now, in the late 500s before Christ, the situation is far different. Israel is now small and insignificant and a vulnerable nation. The Edomites are forming raiding parties, and no one knows who's going to be killed next. Persian taxes are devastating the Jewish economy. There have been some bad years. Droughts have come, and some Jews are at the point of starvation. And what's more, some wealthy Jews are exploiting their own brothers. They're a spiritual mess. And in this political and economic environment, a foundation gets laid to rebuild the ancient temple, and it looks so small, and those old men and women who were alive and saw the glory of the old temple begin to cry. I mean, this seems like nothing. And then God raises up three prophets. The first one is Haggai, and he has something to say about all this. Haggai 2 verse 9, he says, The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. In other words, you think the temple of Solomon was great? Well, down the line, the glory of this house will be greater than that. The long-awaited Messiah will come to this house. Then Zechariah prophesies, and his prophecy is grand and far-reaching in scope. Listen to Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so these two prophets tell of the glory of the temple and of the ancient promises of God who will fill the earth with his glory. But there are still problems, and the current problems in Israel, which brings us to Malachi, the last book of the First Testament. By the time of Malachi, the temple has now been rebuilt, but nothing significant has happened. In fact, in many ways, things have gotten worse. The priesthood, the men that serve in the temple, are corrupt, and the people know it, and so they no longer treat the priests with respect. And so when people bring their required offerings for sacrifice at the temple, they bring diseased and old animals, things they're not going to use anyway. And since the times are economically tough, no one's tithing. And most of them are caring for their own needs. And then along comes the last of the Old Testament prophets about 400 years before Christ, and he has something to say. The book begins by saying that God has a dispute with his people. And the people are saying, you know, we're really God's chosen people. And God responds by saying, if you weren't, I would have destroyed you the way I destroyed the nation of Edom. And yet with this promise comes a warning. In Malachi 2, God promises to cut off from his presence those individuals who insist on doing evil. Indeed, God even says he is wearied by Israel. And yet, God will still fulfill his purposes. In spite of Israel's sin, God will do what he said. He will fill the earth with his glory by sending his Messiah and his ruler of the earth. And that brings us to Malachi 3, 1 to 4. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure in the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. 
then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. Now, we could say so much more, but please notice five things. First, in verse 1, we learn that God will send a messenger who will prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah to the temple. In fact, this theme is reinforced at the very end of the Old Testament, where Malachi says that one will come in the power of Elijah to prepare the way for the Messiah. You know, isn't it fascinating that this is where the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins with John the Baptist announcing that all should repent for the kingdom of God promised in the Old Testament was at hand. Do you remember what Jesus taught about that? And I'm reading Matthew 17, 10 to 13. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So that's the first thing we learn from Malachi, that when the Messiah comes, he will be preceded by a messenger, one who comes in the power of Elijah. And then second, In verse 1, we also learn that the Lord whom they seek will suddenly appear at his temple. And third, he, that is the Messiah, is the messenger of the covenant. In other words, the promises God has made to fill the earth with his glory, all these would be fulfilled in the Messiah. And then fourth, but who will endure in that day, given all the sins of the people who can endure? I mean, that's the hard question the Old Testament asks. Who will stand in that day? Because the Messiah is like a refiner's fire, meaning he burns dross away. If he comes to purify, who's going to be left? And then fifth, but even though the question remains unanswered, there's a promise somehow, according to verse four, God will accomplish the restoration of worship and create a people for himself. And so the Old Testament ends in expectation. The Messiah will come, and in some fashion, he will both purify his people and bring mercy at the same time. Now, that's the story of the Old Testament. It's an unfinished story, which is only completed in the New Testament. But put it all together, and it's the story of God's redeeming love, which puts Jesus at the center of the First Testament and the coming of Christmas, that long-anticipated hope of everything God's people have longed for from the beginning of time until the coming of Christ. And that, of course, means that whether you read about Adam or Abraham or Joseph or Joshua or Samson or even King Jehoshaphat, the entire story is one story. It leads in one direction. It ends up with the babe in the manger. Remember that I began by saying that everyone has a story. I wanted really to say so much more than simply notice, isn't it interesting that everyone has a story? And isn't it so much more interesting that God has a story? See, what I really wanted to say is that the only way that you can ever make sense of the story of your life or what your story actually means is to understand your story in the light of God's story. So let's end by attempting to tell that if you understand Christmas rightly, several things become apparent. Now, first, all of us, or more personally, you, need a story, not a series of vignettes that make up your life. You need an overarching story of your life. Have you ever wondered why so many people, maybe maybe you're one of them, 
So many people read their own story much like they read the Bible story as just a series of small stories, not an overarching story. See, here's what I mean. Many people understand their lives as a series of experiences rather than as a grand narrative of God working out his eternal plan in their lives. See, for many, their lives are taken up in things like, you know, this was good luck and this was bad luck and this is when my fortunes changed and these were the moments of happiness in my life and these were the moments of tragedy and sadness, but they've never understood the design of the whole, the divine structure behind all the details that make up their earthly journey. And that's why they don't know what they're being prepared for. They don't know whether they're a vessel of wrath or a vessel of mercy. But reading the Bible not only fills me with the wonder of God's story, it will, through the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us, lead us to see our place in that story. How the major themes of sin and redemption and of the unfailing purposes of God and his promises and his great mercy outpoured in the person of his son, Jesus, all pulls everything together. And that brings me to my second point. Jesus and Jesus alone is the unifying theme of the Bible, and he is the only unifying theme of your life. Unless he's the center, all else is but a series of disconnected, meaningless fragments. Heavenly Father, I pray that this Christmas, all who hear my voice might discover in Jesus everything that they've ever needed for their lives. Help them to see how grand is the story of Christmas and how impactful life-changing his message actually is. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John, we come to the end of your Christmas series, and it's been a unique one to go back into the Old Testament to reflect upon all the evidence of Christ and his coming. Uh, but how does the Old Testament reference to Jesus help us today? That's such a good question because I fear that it has been possible for some people listening to this series to get lost in some of the details and miss the grand story. So here's lesson number one. Christmas is the fulfillment of all that God has promised us through the ages until the coming of Christ. And it tells us that when God makes a promise to us, he never fails in that promise. Christ coming into this world tells us that God did keep his promise. And even though it seemed longer than many of the prophets might have anticipated, these promises did come true. So as we look forward to the second coming of Christ, we should have that same hope in our hearts. Yeah, it's been 2,000 years since Christ was here last, but indeed the promises will all prove to be true. The past reference to God's completed promises assures us of that. It's the great hope of Christmas. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Hi, I'm Dr. John Newfell from Back to the Bible Canada. We all know of promises that were made and not kept. At times, unforeseen circumstances arose, making it impossible to keep our word. And at other times, we may have made a promise that seemed caring and generous, but in the end, the promises fell to the ground. But God is not as we are, and he never speaks about the future without fulfilling his word down to the smallest detail. And Christmas is a remarkable story of the promise-keeping God. God promised that a savior would come, one whose death on the cross would break the power of the curse of sin, 
putting Satan's reign to an end. This Christmas, may we celebrate and marvel over our God, the one and only God who can always be trusted to remain faithful. I hope you find joy and peace this Christmas. Merry Christmas.